Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Thank you for joining me today as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum together for February 10th through the 16th. And today we will be discussing the 6th through the 10th chapters of 2 Nephi. Well, again, I am not... Uh, filming this from my office on the 29th floor in Hong Kong. I'm here still in my home in Colorado, and I anticipate being here next week as well. Uh, here as a refugee from the coronavirus that has plagued uh, so much of China. Uh, there's uh, been a death in Hong Kong this past week, and it's got really everyone on edge. My office, uh, the law firm that I work for, our office hasn't been open for two weeks. Uh, church did not happen Last week, it's not happening uh, this week as well uh, on the February 9th. And then we've also heard that on the 16th, uh, they've also notified us that there will be no church. So people are really concerned uh, about the spread of this virus and really uh, taking precautions to, to make sure that, uh, you know, limit interaction with other people. And so because of that, really, Hong Kong is just... Uh, on shutdown, as is, as is pretty much all of China uh, at the moment. It's really a difficult situation for a lot of people. I feel very fortunate to be here uh, in the U.S. with my family at this uh, difficult time, and certainly thoughts and prayers are, are with uh, friends in, in Hong Kong and, and throughout all of China, hoping that this will soon get under control and I can return to Hong Kong and we can, uh, all of us, uh, return to our normal lives. Uh, but a uh, quick update on that. It's certainly been a difficult year for Hong Kong between the uh, the protests and this coronavirus and who knows what else is uh, in store to come. Um, but uh, I know people there are faithful and very hardworking, diligent, some of the best people in the world, and they'll make it through and Hong Kong will recover. Uh, but in the meantime, again, I'm, I'm grateful to be here in uh, in Colorado. Well, let's turn to our lesson if we could. Uh, last week, you recall that we uh, dis- we said farewell to Father Lehi. Uh, he gave some great, uh, beautiful lectures, especially uh, Lehi chapter two, or sorry, Second Nephi chapter two, um, in which he discussed the uh, the two different uh, plans or the two different laws: the the natural law on the one hand, and then the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the others. And we talked about how. Uh, the Lord has preserved our agency at such an amazing cost, and the uh, the price uh, of that agency was up to a third of his children uh, losing their privilege to and their opportunity to continue to progress, but he has preserved that agency for us, and therefore we are free to choose for ourselves whether or not we want to follow the natural law, uh, which subjects, subjects us to, to death uh, and to separation from God. Or whether or not we will choose to follow Jesus Christ, uh, which overcomes, supersedes the results of the natural law, allowing us and making it possible for us to return to the presence of our Father in heaven. And uh, that was kind of the theme last week was we have agency. And if we choose to exercise our agency wisely, we will be blessed and we will be able to return to our Father in heaven. And if we don't use our agency to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, then we miss out on those blessings and uh, the opportunities to overcome uh, the, the natural effects of, of the fall and, and, and all the natural law. And, uh, and it makes it impossible for us to return permanently uh, to, to abide with our Father in heaven. Now, interestingly, that chapter two was addressed to uh, Lehi's Lehi and Sariah's fifth son, whose name is Jacob. Uh, He was the first that was born in the wilderness. And today's lesson, uh, we get to hear from Jacob. Um, Jacob uh, obviously has grown up and was uh, ordained by Nephi to be a a teacher 
and also given uh, the gift of the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, that's uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 2, we, we learn that uh, Jacob tells us that he was ordained by Nephi, and he was ordained after the manner of his holy order. Um, and of course, the Melchizedek priesthood is the holy uh, priesthood after the order of the Son of God. So clearly, uh, Jacob was a holder of the Melchizedek priesthood. And we also know that at the time, only uh, the Aaronic priesthood was only held by, uh, by Levites. Um, and so uh, the direct descendants of Aaron. And so no one in uh, Lehi's family was that. Um, so they could not have had the Aaronic priesthood. So to the extent that they had any priesthood, uh, which we know they did, uh, they built temples and performed rituals. And, and Jacob tells us clearly here he was ordained after the manner of his holy order. So Nephi, uh, assume he got it through his father Lehi, uh, held the Melchizedek priesthood. And then it was also given to Jacob here. Um, and now, so all of the chapters that we'll be discussing today uh, are, are, are Jacob's chapters. Now, interestingly, uh, chapters 7 and 8 uh, Jacob does nothing but quote Isaiah. And you'll see, and, and next week we'll get nothing but Isaiah for about 13 chapters. Uh, and that'll be an uh, interesting lesson to cover. But uh, Nephi loves Isaiah, and he's obviously bestowed upon his little brother Jacob a deep love for Isaiah as well. And uh so today, part of what we'll be discussing is why do they love Isaiah so much? We discussed it a little bit at the end of the first Nephi uh, as we got our first glimpse of some Isaiah chapters. But uh, these guys, Isaiah is so important uh, to them. Um, and so let's start in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and we get a little glimpse as to uh, why that is. Verses 4 and 5. And now, behold, I would speak unto you concerning things which are and which are to come, and where, wherefore... I will read you the words of Isaiah, and they are the words which my brother has desired that I should speak unto you. And I speak unto you for your sakes, that ye may learn and glorify the name of your God. And now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel. Wherefore, they may be likened unto you, for ye are of the house of Israel. And there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah, which may be likened unto you, because you are of the house of Israel." So clearly one of the reasons that they love Isaiah here is because they liken the teachings of Isaiah unto themselves. And why do they do that? Because they are the house of Israel. Again, this idea that we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, uh, you know, comes from 1 Nephi 19.23, a scripture mastery that we learn in seminary growing up. But it's important to remember that this means more than just that, oh, you take an interesting in the story, uh, an interesting story from the scriptures and you draw some parallel to your life from it. I mean, you can do that to a lot of, I mean, any good literature you can do that to, really. You can take any Disney movie and you can take parallels uh, and draw it to your lives. You can liken uh, Frozen or uh, Little Mermaid or you can liken, or Star Wars. You can liken any good story to yourself. So that's what they're doing here is more than just, uh, you know, taking a story and comparing it to themselves and drawing interesting conclusions and parallels from it. What they're, when, when they talk about likening Isaiah to themselves, the reason they're doing this, and he even says this twice in chapter 5, is, or verse 5, it's, it's because ye are of the house of Israel. The reason Isaiah resonates with these people is because it is so important for them to keep in mind that they are of the house of Israel. They came from Jerusalem. They were Jews. And even though they've left Jerusalem, they're still part of the house of Israel. And why is that important? Because they are the Lord's covenant people. Because the Lord has made special covenants with the house of Israel. And just because they've left Jerusalem doesn't mean that those covenants stop applying to them. Doesn't mean that those blessings that the Lord has promised to the Jews don't still apply to them. And so, Jacob and Nephi go out of their way to teach their people that these covenants that the Lord made with the house of Israel are still applicable to them. Even though they've left Jerusalem, even though they're no longer with the rest of the Jewish people, 
they remain a part of the house of Israel. And therefore, the Lord's blessings that come to the house of Israel continue to apply to them. That's why, that's one of the main reasons why uh, Jacob and Nephi love quoting Isaiah so much. And we get two full chapters of Isaiah today. Uh, And so Jacob starts, he gives us a little taste of quoting Isaiah with verses 6 and 7. And now these are the words, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces towards the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So the promise here that Jacob is reiterating to his people is that salvation will come to the Jewish people. Now, it's going to come, according to these verses, through the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be the ones that carry them on their shoulders, that take them and deliver them, that bring them back to their covenants. But the important thing for Jacob and his people is that salvation will come and that they are not to lose sight of that because they remain the Lord's covenant people. Let's turn to verse 11. Wherefore, after they are driven to and fro, for thus saith the angel, many shall be afflicted in the flesh and shall not be suffered to perish because of the prayers of the faithful. They shall be scattered and smitten and hated. Nevertheless, the Lord will be merciful unto them, that when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together once again to the lands of their inheritance. So Jacob, is <clears throat> he's told his people he's had a vision in which Jerusalem has been destroyed. There is going to be this dispersion of the Jews, and then eventually there is going to come this gathering. After many years, it's not going to happen in Jacob's lifetime, but he's telling his people this because these promises will apply to their posterity, to their children. And I love, uh, it's important to keep in mind, and at the end of verse 11, where he says, uh, the Lord will be merciful unto them that when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance. So when will uh, the, the, the great gathering of Israel happen? It will happen when and as they come to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And it seems that it's not first they will come to a knowledge of their Redeemer, then they will be gathered. It's coming to a knowledge of the Redeemer is the gathering. That is what is going to bring them together, is their coming to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And then they will be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance. So often that's interpreted to understand that they will return to Jerusalem. And we know that that that's a a part of it. But I think the more important part is that we remember Uh, What we've been discussing when we talked about Lehi and his dream, this idea that the tree of life, this promised land, this destination that we are all working for is not necessarily a little piece of geography on the earth. Our promised land for all the faithful, whether or not you are part of the house, uh, the literal house of Israel, whether or not you're a literal descendant of the Jews, That promised land is the celestial kingdom. And that is where the gathering is going to take place. We are going to be gathered back to the presence of our Father in heaven. And the land that we will all inherit is to be the celestial kingdom, where we will enjoy that land of our inheritance with our beloved heavenly parents, who are anxiously waiting for us, And as we come to the knowledge of our Redeemer, as we enter into covenants with Christ, and as we keep those covenants, and as we go along the covenant path that allows us to eventually return to the presence of God, that returning to the presence along the covenant path is the gathering. That is how the children of God, the house of Israel, will come together There's an element that's going to happen upon this earth, apparently, but the most important gathering is not going to be in any uh, city in the Middle East or anywhere else. It's going to be the gathering that happens as we all return to 
the presence of our Father, because that is what Christ came to do. That was his mission. Verse 13, Wherefore, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet, and the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed, for the people of the Lord are they who wait for him. I love this, that as we wait for God, we prove that we are his people. And you know what? Sometimes it's really hard to wait upon the Lord because his timing is not our timing. Things don't happen exactly when we want them to happen. Therefore, we are required to have patience. That's something Elder Maxwell used to talk about so much, something that he learned through his battles with cancer, is that we need to develop patience. Patience for the Lord. Patience and faith and hope that the Lord's will will eventually come to fruition. All of the blessings and all the promises that he has given us are going to come to pass. But the question is, when are they going to come to pass? And the answer to that question is not something that we can decide. Our job is not to determine when the Lord's blessings will happen. Our job is to enter into covenants and prepare ourselves and put ourselves in a position to receive those blessings so that when they do come, we are ready to receive them. But when they, we actually receive them, when they do come, sometimes we don't know. And sometimes they don't happen when we want them to. And sometimes we sit around waiting a lot longer in anticipation of those blessings than we wish we otherwise would. And sometimes the test of our faith is simply a test of patience, as we have to wait upon the Lord. And certainly, no better example of that than the Jewish people, as they waited upon the Lord for their deliverance. They've waited for hundreds, even thousands of years to eventually be redeemed. And we know that that redemption is going to come in ways that they might not necessarily be anticipating. It will come through Jesus Christ, uh, through the very God that they crucified, as we, as we talk about, as Jacob will talk about very soon. But that is how their salvation, how their deliverance will come, but it's not coming when they anticipate it because they've been waiting for a long time. And so as we apply that to our lives, sometimes we have to wait a lot longer for the blessings that we want and that we know are coming, but we don't know exactly when they're coming. And so it can be a challenge to patiently and faithfully wait upon the Lord. But according to this verse 13, as we wait patiently upon the Lord, as we demonstrate our faith, That is how we prove that we are the Lord's people. And there's several wonderful examples of this uh, in the Book of Mormon of people who wait patiently upon the Lord. Uh, You know, specifically think of the peoples in in 3 Nephi as they knew that the sign of the Savior's birth was coming. And it was the night right before they were all to be put to death that that finally came. The sign finally came and they were delivered. So patience is a critical part of of having faith. In verses 17 and 18 in in 2 Nephi 6, But thus saith the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered, for the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. For thus saith the Lord, I will contend with them that contend with me, and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, And they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. So here the Lord promises that he will deliver his people. If If his people will patiently wait for him, that salvation will come. And verse 18 seems a little bit grotesque, but but I love the imagery here as he talks about those that oppress thee, those that from whom the Jews are waiting for deliverance, what will their eventual result be? They will, uh, they will feast upon their own flesh and drunk with their own blood. Again, that sounds very graphic and almost very kind of gruesome imagery. But if you think about it in terms of feasting upon flesh and drinking blood, we do that when we take the sacrament. We 
feast upon the Savior's flesh. We partake of his flesh when we partake of the bread and we drink of his blood when we drink of the water. And if those people that have been oppressing them, if they're eating their own flesh and if they're drinking their own blood, whose flesh and blood are they not eating and drinking of? Obviously the Savior's. So I don't think this is literal and that they will be actually eating their own flesh and actually drinking their own blood. But what it means here is that as they seek for their salvation, it will, they will not be seeking Christ. Because salvation only comes through Christ, through eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. And they will be turning to their own ways. And their own ways will be woefully insufficient. And that'll be a theme we'll see in a few of the, of the Isaiah chapters that, that Jacob's about to read to us. This idea of people going after their own way, trying to make salvation on their own instead of turning to Christ uh, is an important theme that we need to take note of because, you know, how often do we turn to our own ways instead of relying upon the ways of, of Jesus Christ as we seek for our salvation? And so with that, let's turn to chapters 7 and 8. Um, these are direct quotes from Isaiah, uh, and it can be compared to uh, Isaiah chapters 50 and 51 in our current Old Testament. Uh, there's a few minor tweaks that we're not going to uh, spend any time discussing. We're just going to discuss the language that Jacob has given to us. Uh, these languages, uh, certainly these words have come uh, from and are taken from the brass plates, that uh, Nephi and his brothers went back to get from Laban. Um, and so it has been preserved uh, for the Nephites so that they can read them. And again, the purpose of them reading Isaiah is because his promises to the Jewish people are the greatest. They're the most direct. The warnings are also the clearest. And, and so Isaiah to the Jews is an absolutely beloved figure and, and something that they constantly turn to for both a source of, of warning and a source of encouragement and promise and hope in the covenants that the Lord has made with them. And so since this, this, this band of Lehi and his descendants, even though they, again, even though they've left Jerusalem, they're still part of the Lord's covenant people. And so it's only natural for them to turn to Isaiah to better understand those covenants and those promises. And so with that, let's start in uh, chapter one, um, or sorry, chapter seven. Uh, and, and we can read in verse uh, ver- verse 1, uh, where it says, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away, or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgression is your mother put away. So here the Lord reminds them that, look, if you, feel, uh, if you feel estranged from me, if you feel like I've somehow become distant from you, it's nothing that I've done. I'm not the one that sold you. I haven't entered into any divorce with you or your mother. You've done that. You have sold yourself. You have chosen to separate yourself from me. Uh, a great warning to both the Jews and to us that, you know, are we keeping our covenants? And if we do feel distance from the Lord, most likely it's not because he's moved. It's because we've moved. And the adjustment needs to not come from him, but to come from us in the form of repentance. Uh, let's jump to verse 11 then uh, in chapter 7. <clears throat> Behold, all ye that kindle fire that encompass yourself about with sparks. Walk in the light of your own fire and in the sparks which ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. And here we have the same idea that we talked about at the, in the last verse of chapter 6, where they, instead of turning to Christ and his sacrament, they're eating their own flesh and drinking their own blood. Here the imagery is a little different. Rather than enjoying the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's you know brighter than the sun at noonday, what light are they trying to walk by? <clears throat> by their the fire that they've kindled themselves, which is nothing but a few sparks. 
Can you imagine walking in a dark room trying to rely upon the light of just a few sparks of fire? They're temporary and they go away and they don't provide much light in the first place. That's the one option. That's the option for those that follow the natural law that aren't willing to follow Jesus Christ and his gospel. They choose to follow their own sparks that provide very limited uh, and temporary light. Whereas opposed to if you choose to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, instead of just a few sparks, you can have the sun at noonday. And that's the decision that they're making. Turn to chapter 8, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. It's it's important to put in perspective this concept of eternity and infinity, and that's what Isaiah is doing here in these few verses, to remember that The earth and the heaven and everything that's here will vanish away. But salvation from Jesus Christ is forever. And his righteousness shall not be abolished. So we think of, and it's so hard for us, even though we are immortal spirits, we're here trapped in this uh, temporal earth. It's so hard for us to really grasp the notion, I think, of eternity. Uh, I remember Truman Madsen put it, Uh, This way once where he said, you know, think of eternity and how long, uh, how long that's going to take. He said, think of Mount Tempanogos, that big, giant, enormous rock. Now he said, imagine that every 10,000 years, a bird comes and sharpens its beak upon Mount Tempanogos. And then once its beak is sharpened, then it flies away. And imagine how long it would take if every 10,000 years a bird comes and sharpens its beak, how long it would take to wear down Mount Tempanogos just by the simple act of a bird sharpening its beak. It's unfathomable because the, the sharpening of its beak would do so little to that giant massive mountain. And if that only happens once every 10,000 years, How long would it take for that great mountain to be withered away? Now, put that in the context of eternity. Uh, The mind can't even grasp what eternity means and what infinity means. Um, But that's what we're dealing with. And that's what the Lord's salvation is. This earth that we live on now, it's going to go away. It's not permanent. It's temporary. Even though it will... It's been around for billions of years and it likely has several billion to come. It's still temporary. It's not permanent. But eventually it will become the eternal celestial kingdom and that will be permanent. That will last forever. And so as we think of eternity, salvation being eternal, uh, it really, really blows the mind. But that's what, that's what Isaiah is trying to teach us here. And Jacob is reiterating to his people. In other words, don't get upset by these temporary setbacks. They'll all go away. This bondage you find yourself in doesn't matter. It's all temporary. Salvation from the Lord, that is eternal. And that is infinite. Uh, verse 12. I am he, yea, I am he that comforteth you. Behold, who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of man, who shall die, and of the son of man, who shall be made like unto grass? I love this idea. Who are you to be afraid of what man can do to you? It's almost calling, it's like Isaiah is calling us out here. How dare you be afraid? Who do you think you are that you can be afraid of? of these other people. You're a child of God. You've entered into covenants with him. Why would you be afraid of people that don't have any salvation power to save at all? Why would you worry what someone says or thinks or or makes fun of you for if that person doesn't have any impact upon your eternity? Remember how long eternity is that we've just discussed. Remember how 
huge the eternal ramifications of things are. And you're going to worry what a few people say? Who do you think you are? Well, if whoever, whoever you're thinking you are, you're forgetting who you are. And who you are is a covenant child of God. A child who has entered into covenants with the Lord. And if you keep those covenants, the blessings of eternity are yours to gain. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, I love that verse. Who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of man? It's like he's calling us out here. I, I found that was great as I was uh, preparing this. Uh, and then verse 24 in chapter 8. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. I, again, it uh, harkens us back to Lehi calling out his sons when he says, you know, arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, and be determined in one mind and in one heart. He's challenging them to live up to their potential. And that's what Isaiah is doing to the Jewish people here. And Jacob is reminding his people of that. Awake, awake, put on thy strength. And when we talk about putting on thy strength, uh, to better understand that notion, let's turn to DNC section 113, uh, verses 7 and 8, in which uh, Prophet Joseph Smith received a direct revelation about these verses. Question by Elias Higby. What is meant by the command in Isaiah 52nd chapter, first verse, which saith, Put on thy strength, O Zion, and what people had Isaiah reference to? He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel, and to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which, ha- which she had lost. So when we talk about putting on her strength, we're talking about regaining, putting on priesthood power, uh, taking again that priesthood power, which is rightfully yours. And Isaiah's again, calling out the Jewish people, take that power from God, that holy priesthood, which the Lord has given to you, live up to your potential, use it to bless your lives, use it to bless other people, put on your strength, um, <clears throat> put on your beautiful garments, keep the covenants that the Lord has made with you and live up to your potential, remembering who you are. Now, it's like your mother when you, you know, went to school in the morning. Remember who you are. Remember what you stand for. This is Isaiah and in turn Jacob calling out his people, reminding them to remember who they are. Remember the covenants that the Lord has made with them. Remember the priesthood power that the Lord has given to them. And remember the great blessings that await for them if they will what be, but be faithful. If they will just be willing to wait upon the Lord and wait upon his blessings Wait just a little bit longer, keeping in mind how long eternity is and the huge consequences that come from being patient for just a little bit of time. Uh, powerful stuff here from, from Isaiah uh, and as uh, re-given to us and to his people by Jacob. Now let's turn to uh, Jacob chapter 9, which is uh, truly one of the great uh, scriptures in the Book of Mormon Uh, and Jacob and his teaching and his testimonies uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, It starts uh, with Jacob telling again his people why uh, he is telling them and reading to them Isaiah, reminding them in verse 3, you know, he's doing it, telling them that they might uh, rejoice and lift up your heads and the blessings of the Lord uh, shall be, that the Lord God shall bestow upon your children uh, forever. He's telling them these things from Isaiah to encourage them, to lift them up, and to remind them that they are the Lord's covenant people if they will choose to uh, receive the blessings that the Lord has in store for them. Now in verse 5, he starts talking about um, reminding them what happens uh, after death because many of these people apparently have these same questions. And uh, And it's interesting. It reminds us of... Uh, Alma's discussion with his son Corianton. If you remember, he had, unlike his brothers, he had not 
kept the commandments while he was out serving as a missionary and had even uh, broken the law of chastity. And Alma, being the sensitive father, recognized that um, some of his challenges and some of his problems had to do with the fact that he simply didn't understand the plan of salvation. He didn't understand uh, what happens to the soul, to the spirit, and to the body uh, after this life. Um, and in Second Nephi chapter 9, apparently some of the people Jacob is teaching have similar questions and similar concerns. And so he starts this great lecture in chapter 9 by addressing those concerns, by addressing those questions about the, revelation, about, uh, the resurrection. Uh, and that's in verses 5 and 6. Yea, I know that ye know that in the body ye shall show yourself, uh, he shall show himself unto those at Jerusalem from whence we came. For it is expedient that it should be among them. For it behooveth the great creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh and to die for all men, that all men might become subject unto him. For his death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the, cre- of the great creator There must needs be a power of resurrection, and the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall, and the fall came by reason of transgression, and because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. So he's reminding them that what I've taught you is that Christ is going to come to the people at Jerusalem. He's going to condescend and come in the flesh. And the reason that he's going in the, come in the come in the flesh, one of the reasons is so that he can die. He can subject himself to the death, uh, to the flesh, and allow himself to die. And why is he going to do that? So that he can be resurrected. And once he has burst the bands of death, once he has been resurrected, then we can be resurrected as well. Then it's possible for us to also be resurrected. And that was one of the reasons that Christ is going to come. So Jacob says to those of you that have questions about what happens next, about what happens after we leave this world, just know that there is going to be a resurrection, that there is something after this life. This life is not the end of it. We don't get put in the ground and then our spirits and bodies vanish away never to be Uh, never to continue and to progress, Christ is going to come and he's going to be resurrected. Because of that, there's more. There's more to this, our continuation, to our existence than simply what happens in this life. And apparently a lot of uh, people that Jacob is teaching have forgotten that. And so Jacob is reminding them. In verse 7, Wherefore it it must needs be an infinite atonement, Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth to rise no more. So as Jacob teaches them about the resurrection, uh, he teaches them about this atonement, about this infinite atonement. And he says it, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Can you imagine if the atonement was not infinite? If the resurrection was only temporary? If our salvation from sins was not everlasting? Well, what would even be the point? Christ could come and save us for a time, but after that we are subject to ourselves? No. The atonement is infinite. It has to be in order for us to have faith in it. It has to be in order for it to have any meaning. The effects of the atonement have to be forever. And remember, we just talked about how long forever is. It must be an infinite, an eternal, a forever atonement. And the effects of the atonement have to be infinite and forever. And what that means is that it must be able to transform us permanently. The changes that happen as a result of the atonement, the changes that happen in each of us, both to our body, uh, through the power of the resurrection, and to our spirits, through the power of the redemption, and the power to repent, and the power to progress eternally and become more like our Father in heaven. 
those effects have to be infinite and they have to be eternal. And that's what Jacob is going to teach them about here, reminding them that it's not just this life that we're talking about here. We have to take a much bigger eternal perspective of thing in order things in order for the gospel to make any sense. And so as Jacob teaches his people, he's encouraging them to take that bigger picture, to recognize that there is a resurrection that, and that the atonement is infinite in its effects. Let's jump now to uh, verses 10 through 12. Oh, how great the goodness of our God who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster. Yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And because of the way and because of the way of deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave. And this death of which I have spoken, which is the spiritual death, shall deliver up its dead, which spiritual death is hell. Wherefore, death and hell must deliver up their dead, and hell must deliver up its captive spirits, and the grave must deliver up its captive bodies, and the bodies and the spirits of men will be restored one to the other, and it is by the power of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel. So Jacob is a wonderful teacher, and he's laying out things very clearly here. He's reminding us that there's two deaths that we're dealing with. There's the death of the body, uh, which is the death, which is the grave. It's the separation of our bodies and our spirits. And remember, every time we talk about death in a spiritual context, what we mean is a separation. So the first death he's talking about is the grave, the separation of our bodies and our spirits. And the second death he's talking about, spiritual death, is hell. It's our separation from us from God because of our unworthiness, because of our mistakes, because of our uncleanliness. And it's these two deaths, these two separations, which are overcome by the atonement, by the at-one-ment. And so our bodies and our spirits, even though they are separated by the grave, by this first death, will come together again through the power of the resurrection. And this first death is overcome by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that understood, we now turn to the second death, which is our separation from God. And it's both a physical separation as well as a spiritual separation. We are unworthy to be in God's presence because we are not yet like him. We are not yet at his level. We are not worthy to be permanently, to live with him, to enjoy the type of life that he lives And Christ's infinite atonement is to overcome both of those deaths. And so it's to that second death uh, that we now turn. And uh, so let's read verses 21 through 23 in uh, 2 Nephi chapter 9. And he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men. Yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children who belong to the family of Adam. And he suffereth this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at the great and judgment day. And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God." So Christ came and he suffered the pains of all men. And I find that a fascinating concept. He suffered the pains of all men. We all have our own unique pains. We all have our own unique frustrations or things that cause us sorrow. They're all unique to us. Something that makes me sad might not make you sad and vice versa. But Even though we all have our unique pains, he has suffered all of them. And why has he done that? He suffered this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that we might stand before God at the great day. So we're going to be resurrected and we're going to be brought back into the presence of God. And then he has commanded us that we must repent. 
and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith, or we cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. So not only are we going to be brought back to the presence of God, but we want to be saved in the kingdom of God. And how do we do that? Well, we must repent and be baptized in his name and have perfect faith. Now, this concept of perfect faith in verse 23 might be a little bit troubling because how do you have perfect faith? I, I know I personally, I have faith, but I certainly wouldn't call it perfect faith. And if that's the criteria that's going to determine my, whether or not I'm saved in the kingdom of God, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. If by perfect, we're talking about 100% nothing faltering. But as I, as I frequently talked about when we were discussing in the New Testament, this idea of perfection um, it doesn't just necessarily mean 100% without flaw. Perfection from a legal point of view is the idea that you do everything that you can, take all the steps necessary to show your interest uh, to the world, to third parties. So for example, uh, if you've uh, purchased a house and there's a mortgage on your house, your bank has perfected its interest in your title by putting a notation on the title that says it has a mortgage interest on it. Now, obviously the bank doesn't occupy your house and it doesn't have to, to perfect its interest in your house. All that the law requires it to do in order to do everything that it can to strengthen its claim of having that mortgage is to reflect that mortgage on the title. Now, different jurisdictions have different ways, different requirements as to what perfection requires, but the concept remains the same. You do everything that the law permits you to do in order to show your interests, and by doing that, you have perfected your interests. So, taking that notion and applying it to perfect faith, I think shows that our faith doesn't have to be 100% without flaw, because to be honest, I think that might be impossible for most of us. If the standard is perfect faith, there's not going to be very many people saved. But if perfection means the idea that we do all that is required of us in order to show our faith to the world, well, I can do that. And I've done that, and I did that when I was baptized. And I did that as I received the Holy Ghost. And I did that as I went to the temple and I received my endowment. And I did that as I kneeled across the altar from my wife and was sealed to her. I enter into covenants and receive sacred ordinances in order to perfect my faith, in order to show God that I'm willing to do everything that he requires of me to demonstrate my faith and my love for him. So I propose that as we enter into covenants, and as we do our part to keep those covenants, and as we receive sacred ordinances, we are perfecting our faith. Our faith is perfect as we take the actions that the Lord requires us to take. And so we can stand with perfect faith before God at the last day, qualifying ourselves to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 24, and if they will not repent and believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end, they must be damned. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. So, damnation, this idea we have to remember, we are eternal beings and we are trying to progress eternally. That is what salvation is. That is what exaltation is, is its eternal progression, always improving. And damnation is when we stop progressing, when we stop improving, just as a dam stops water from going outside of its boundaries, damnation stops us from progressing and from improvement. So that means whatever it is that is holding us back, whatever sin it is that is preventing, that is preventing us from becoming our best self, Whatever it is that we can't quite kick, whatever habit, whatever weakness it is that we can't quite kick, that will be our damnation if we are unable to kick it because we are to progress eternally. That is what the Lord intends for us. He intends for us to get better forever, to improve, to progress, to always become more and more like him. And if there is anything that is keeping us from him, 
that will damn us. That will prevent us from continuing to progress. And so how important is it that we are constantly repenting, constantly improving ourselves, constantly trying to become more like our Father in heaven? Verses 28 and 29. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God. For they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. But to be learned is good, if they hearken unto the counsels of God. Now this is a challenging verse here, because we know the importance of our intellect. We know the importance of education and prophets have even told us we are continu- we are to enjoy continuing education. We are continue to learn and that our knowledge and the things that we have learned is one of the few things that we can actually take with us to eternity. And part of eternal progression is the idea that we will constantly be learning and knowing more and more. But here Jacob warns us that if we get too much knowledge, so much to the point that we start relying upon ourselves rather than humbly trusting God, that will be the point at which we are damned. That will be the point at which we stop progressing. Our knowledge, good as it can be essential as it is for our progression, can, if we start relying upon our own knowledge, turn to a thing that makes us stop progressing, that damns us, that prevents us from becoming more like God. So what are we to do? We are to, while learning, while continuing to receive more light and knowledge, always keep in mind that we are not as knowledgeable. We are not omniscient. We do not know as much as God knows. We have to remain humble. We have to always remember that all we are learning is infinitely small compared to what God knows. We have to remind ourselves that even though we know more than we did yesterday, we do not even come close to knowing what God knows. And because of that, when our options are trust in our own knowledge or trust in the commandments of God, either given to us by a holy prophet or by the Holy Ghost, We are to trust God. We are to trust his knowledge, recognizing that his knowledge is and always will be more than ours. And that can be so hard. That can be so hard, especially for people that are well-educated. And what a credit is to those who have received a lot of education that are great intellectuals, but remain humble. I think one of the greatest examples of those that I know uh, passed away about a week ago, Clayton Christensen, a Harvard Business School professor who I've had the privilege of meeting a few times. Uh, Here was a man, unbelievably intelligent, but also incredibly humble, and that he was able to balance those two, to take his giant intellect, and he was always gaining more and more intellect. He was a scholar In every sense of the word, he was learning every single day. But even with that great intellect of his, he remained humble and he remained reliant upon the Lord. Uh, What a great example. What a great man he was. Uh, And so that's the challenge for each of us is to continue to receive education, to improve ourselves, to become more and more knowledgeable while also remaining humble, remembering that our knowledge is nothing compared to the Lord's. And when those two come in conflict with each other, we have to turn to the Lord and trust in him. And then in addition to that, uh, verse 30. But woe unto the rich who are rich as to the things of the world. For because they are rich, they despise the poor and they persecute the meek and their hearts are upon their treasures. Wherefore their treasure is their God and behold, their treasure shall perish with them. So just as more, having more knowledge than others can lead us to pride in our own knowledge. Uh, so too can having more money or more resources than others lead us away from our dependency in God, on God. So the challenge in verse 28 of having too much intellect and trusting that intellect is really just 
another side of the same coin is this challenge in verse 30 and having too much wealth or other resources and that the temptation is to rely upon those other resources. So read a, uh, I'd like to read a quick quote uh, from President Kimball and uh, one, of, uh, one of the great, uh, it was printed as, as an essay essentially in the Enzyme uh, uh, many years ago. Uh, in a in an article called The False Gods That We Worship. And in there, he, he said the following, Few men have ever knowingly and deliberately chosen to reject God and his blessings. Rather, we learn from the scriptures that because the exercise of faith has always appeared to be more difficult than relying on things more immediately at hand, carnal man has tended to transfer his trust in God to material things. Therefore, in all ages, when men have fallen under the power of Satan and lost the faith, they have put in its place a hope in the arm of flesh and in gods of silver and gold and of brass, of iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. That is, in idols. This I find to be a dominant theme in the Old Testament. Whatever thing a man sets his heart and his trust in most is his God. And if his God doesn't also happen to be the true and living God of Israel, that man is laboring in idolatry. I love that quote from President Kimball, reminding us that if we put our trust in anything, whatever is number one in terms of the things that we trust, that is our God. And if your number one in terms of the things that you trust is not Jesus Christ, that is idolatry by definition. Whether it be your own intellect, whether it be your own wealth, whether it be your job, whether it be somebody else, whether it be your quest for power, Whatever it is that you put as your priority, that is your God. And if that God is not Jesus Christ, you are laboring in idolatry. A stern warning, but it's, it seems to be the same one that Jacob is reminding his people. And the remi- specific reminders he gives here are great for us in our day and age. Intellect and wealth. Two good things that can be used for wonderful, wonderful purposes. But if we put them as number one, they can become our idols. And then we are in serious problem. Verse 39. Oh, my beloved brethren, remember the awfulness and transgressing against that holy God and also the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of that cunning one. Remember to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Remember, spiritually minded is life eternal. Smile, S-M-I-L-E, spiritually minded is life eternal. Uh, but to be carnally minded is what Jacob is warning us against is death. To be focused on the things of the world, those temporal things, that leads to death. That leads to separation from God. And so the challenge for us is to be spiritually minded, not to be focused upon the temporary carnal things of the world, but to be focused on the spiritual things of God. And as we focus on the spiritual things of God, it leads to life eternal. It leads to reconciliation with God. It leads to our ability to return to his presence and to stay with him. So the challenge is how do we do that? How do we become spiritually minded? Well, like a lot of things, I think the answers are the primary answers. You go to church, you read your scriptures, you say your prayer, you serve other people, you do the basic things. And as you do those things, as you constantly remind yourself of our dependence on God, these other things will not become the priority. You'll maintain your faith in God. You'll maintain your faith in Jesus Christ. And you will maintain your spiritual mindedness. Verse 41. Oh, then, my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord, the Holy One. Remember that his paths are righteous. Remember, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate. For he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. I think a very interesting concept that the Lord, he's the one that keeps the gate and he employeth no servant there. He's not hiring somebody to do his job Uh, This is not a job that he's delegating out or offshoring to somebody else. This job of being the keeper of the gate, of being the one that determines 
whether or not we can return to the presence of the Father, of being the only source of salvation, this is something that he's doing himself. This is something he will not delegate. There is no other way back to the Father other than through Jesus Christ, through his atonement. He is the only way of overcoming those two deaths that we spoke of earlier, the grave and hell. He is the only way of overcoming those two and returning to the Father, of entering the kingdom where we can stay with our heavenly parents forever. Verses 42 and 43. And whoso knocketh, to him will he open. And the wise and the learned, and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. And save they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fool before God and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. But the things of the wise and the prudent shall be hid from them forever. Yea, the happiness which is prepared for the saints." So 42 starts, whosoever knocketh to him will he open. So those that are wise, those that are those that are learned and uh, think highly of their own intellect, those that are wealthy and rely upon their own wealth, those who have any other gods before the God, Jesus Christ, anyone who labors in any type of idolatry, why will the Lord not open the door to them? Simple. They don't knock. They don't ask him to. He's willing to. He's waiting there. He's being patient. He's begging them, please knock and I will open. Please come unto me. Please enter into covenants with me so that I can save you. But if we rely on the arm of flesh, if we rely on ourselves, if we're too drunk with our own blood and eating our own flesh rather than partaking of the sacrament, and we're not relying upon Jesus Christ, He's powerless to save us, and it's not his fault, but it's ours because of our own idolatry, because we rely upon our own gods and our own self, rather than relying upon Jesus Christ, who is the only God that can save us. Well, in chapter 9, with verses 50 and 51, Come, my brethren, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come by and eat. Yea, come by wine and my and milk without money and without price. Wherefore, do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me and remember the words which I have spoken and come unto the Holy One of Israel and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted and let your soul delight in fatness. I love at the end of verse 50 when he tells us to come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's kind of a contradiction, right? How are we supposed to buy something without money and without price? He doesn't tell us, come and take my milk, come and receive it. He's saying, come and buy it. So clearly, the currency that we are to use in this exchange as we buy milk and honey, these things that provide us nourishment, these things that will sustain us for eternity. The price is not money. The price is nothing of this world. The price cannot be bought with anything that we do or anything that we gain from this life. The price for salvation, the price for what Christ is offering us is our heart. The price that Christ wants us to pay is to give everything that we have that is ours to him, to turn ourselves to him, to put aside our pride, our intellect, our wealth, use them to build his kingdom, not for our own purposes. And in the process, remembering that we are not saved by them, do not trust them. They will perish. They will not save you. But what Christ offers cannot be bought with the things of the world, but it provides salvation. So in verse 51, do not spend money for that which is of no worth. What a great reminder. As I look around my life, I've spent a lot of money on things that at the end really have no worth. Certainly what Jacob is not telling us here is to get rid of all of our worldly possessions and live like hermits. But to remember that our time is limited. Our resources are limited. Our, the things that we can do are limited. 
So we should focus them on the things that have worth, not the temporal things of this world, but the things that will lead us to salvation, that will allow us to return to our heavenly parents. And we'll end with chapter 10, quickly go through chapter 10, uh, in which he, he... Jacob starts by reminding them of the wickedness of the Jews, of the mistakes that they've made. But in addition to the wickedness is reminding them that they have great promises that are in store for them as well. And again, because they are part of the house of Israel, they will receive these promises if they will hold out faithful, if they will not engage in idolatry, if they will not put other gods before Jesus Christ, they too will receive those blessings and will be saved. Verses 20 and 21. And now, my beloved brethren, seeing that our merciful God has given us so great knowledge concerning these things, let us remember him and lay aside our sins and not hang down our heads, for we are not cast off. Nevertheless, we have been driven out of the land of our inheritance, but we have been led to a better land. For the Lord has made the sea our path, and we are upon the isles of the sea. But great are the promises of the Lord unto them who are upon the isles of the sea. Wherefore, as it says, isles, there must be more than this, and they are inhabited also by our brethren. I love this because I think sometimes it's so easy to think that we have been cast off, that we are on the isles of the sea, that we are going through unique challenges that nobody else understands. But it's essential to remember during those challenges that we are not cast off from Christ. As we talked about earlier, if we feel separated from him, it's our fault. We are the ones that need to change. Christ has not cast us off. He's given us challenges for sure. Sometimes he leads us to places that we don't anticipate, but he always does so for our benefit. And if we will turn to him, we will be able to see that when we will be able to receive the blessings that he has in store for us. So if we ever feel like we are upon the isles of the sea, that we have been cast off, that no one else understands us, remember Christ led us there. Christ has power to deliver us. We are not alone, but he will save and he will deliver us. We'll end with verses 23 and 24. Therefore, cheer up your hearts and remember that ye are free to act for yourself, to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of of eternal life. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourself to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. Perfect few verses to end this lesson on, and we will end here. Remember, brothers and sisters, that our agency has been preserved for us, that we are free to choose. And be grateful for this incredible blessing of agency. And it is our choice whether or not we want to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. Whether or not we will put Jesus Christ as our number one priority or whether or not we will let something else, whether it be our intellect, our wealth, or any number of other potential idols, become our priority. But if we want to be saved, the choice is ours. We can enter into covenants with Christ. We can choose to keep those covenants and we can make those covenants our priority. And the promise is that as we do so, that we will be reconciled to God and that through the grace of God, we will be saved. So I hope that we will choose to put Christ our priority to be reconciled to God so that we can be saved in the kingdom of God. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.